What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is the sit-down with myself. My good friend Matt Shanfield, the SVP of development at IPC, suggested we do an episode where he talks to me about my career path. Don't know if it was a good idea or not, but we're about to find out. Uh, Before we get into that, Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back. For everybody back on the grind, back in their cars, sitting through hours of traffic. Maybe you crazy East Coast people are listening right now while you take a train to work. I don't even know what that's like, but good luck with that. Uh, Maybe those of you are back in the gym uh, because you're working on New Year's resolutions. 2018 was a crazy-ass year, and I think 2019 is going to be just as crazy. We have a new head of the National Broadcasting Company who's one of us. A former head of reality is running a broadcaster. Kind of a big deal. Companies sold, companies merged. We'll talk about that in later episodes. But look, if you are going to be at this year's Real Scream in New Orleans, make sure to stop by and say what up. Would love to see all of you at the panel I am hosting. I am doing a chat with World of Wonder Wednesday at 5 o'clock. But for now, this is my episode talking about myself with Matt Shanfield. I hope you enjoy it. Let's start this off by some quick rapid fire questions. I've heard you do this before on some other ones. I usually come near the end. We're going to start with 10 quick rapid fire questions. You can't take time to think. You just have to answer. Are you ready? You realize how hard this is for me right now. That's why I wanted to start with it. I'm relinquishing all control to you. All right, let's do this. Have you ever attempted to watch a cut while in traffic on the 405 South? Yes. Yes. Did you, how did it turn out? I'm, I am, I, this is a major issue for me. I spend way too much time on my phone in the car because I, I am on the four or five South and it is 45 minutes minimum hour and 20 minutes maximum every day to and from work. I tell myself every day, this is the day I put down my phone. It's, it's really awful. It's an awful thing to admit to. You could get a driver or you could do the thing. I could get a driver. You could get a driver or, or you could do the thing where you just Uber everywhere. A lot of people are doing that. You understand whose office you're in right now, right? You understand I'm not, I'm not one of my previous guests who has sold their company for millions of dollars. Under, understand the company you're in right now. Well, no. Daily Uber driver from Encino to Westchester and back will not be happening. Who does your intro music? Oh, great question. Great question. My cousin-in-law, Curtis Carrito, uh, married to my cousin Sarah. Curtis uh, just... He does composing and music on the side as like a love. He has like a real day job. And I've had him do a couple of cues for me. And he just does it at his house. And he's like, I gave him um, I gave him the Beastie Boys Root Down yep. track yep. as the inspiration yep. of what I wanted for this show. And he came up with what you hear. Yeah. Um, have you ever been to New Orleans? I was just in New Orleans. Okay. I was in, I've been to New Orleans twice. The first time was for a wedding in my early 20s. A high school buddy got married. Didn't really get outside of the French Quarter. And then I just went a few weeks ago for my annual football trip with my buddies. And we went to the Saints-Rams game. Every year we go to a different city in a different stadium. So, yes, been in New Orleans. Are you asking me because Real Screen's in New Orleans that in January? That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, so that'll be my second time in like three months going. So I got, the, I got to do a little early scouting, Matt. Um, I love it. Um, favorite lunch spot in Culver City to take network execs to? Oh, um, okay. It started as... Well, first off, let's be honest. The network execs are not coming to me in conversation. Well, that's why, so, that's why I ask. In so, case they did or it's their commute or no, something along so those the lines. Fa- so the favorite lunch spot for network execs is Islands. wherever the network execs <laughs> want. 
Um, they don't go to me. Uh, who the hell am I going to get down here? Uh, but for any other meetings uh, that I might do or lunch meetings, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to wave to my assistant right now. Um, Kristen, because I can't ever remember the name of the place. Is there, it Rush Street? I used to go to public school. No, not Rush Street. What okay. am I, 25 years old? I don't know. You, you, Are we getting jalapeno poppers? Kristen, where's the lunch spot Jimmy likes to where's go to? Where's the lunch spot in Culver City that I go to that's like the healthy option? Not public school. I stopped doing that. Yes, yeah. She doesn't know. I don't know. I'm awful. Well, wait, uh, stay tuned. It's around the corner from public school. Kristen will be back on, on this in a second. Stay tuned, and you'll find out at the yes. end of this podcast. Um Put this Nicolas Cage trilogy in order from favorite to least favorite. The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, go. My Rock knowledge is not what it should be. Um, are we just going on what's the best movie or just no, me personally? You personally. If I just watch movie. him right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, if I had to watch him right now, I'd absolutely watch Face Off first. Absolutely. I mean, this is peak Travolta. This is peak Travolta. It's so cheesy. I mean, the whole thing. The whole thing. The, the premise, everything is just... I'm kissing my fingers. I'm doing the Italian kiss of my fingers right now. Then Con Air, Steve Buscemi, that cast is amazing. Uh, Cusack, sneaky good Cusack in that movie. Um, and, and, then, and then The Rock. And again, I don't, The Rock isn't, has always been one of my favorites. I'm like, I'm like neutral on Sean Connery. I think you need to give The Rock another chance. Yeah, it's no, my, I know. It's I my know. favorite. It's, it's, it's the best. It's, it's definitely a hole in my game of, of the pop culture stuff. I, I should be more on The Rock. Um, have you ever passed on a show... And then it ended up selling. Mm. I've lost out on shows. Sure. No, I'm saying that you didn't see it. It was pitched to you. You had the opportunity. You passed on it and then you saw it on the air or you. And I don't mean that you saw it got set up as a presentation or a pilot. You're like, eh, and then it died out where you kind of dodged a bullet. I'm saying like it actually yeah. sold. That's a really good question. I've, I know in my heart it has happened. I know I just I can't think of what it is right now. Can I tell you the one thing that like recently happened yeah. that I didn't necessarily pass on, but I didn't keep pursuing it when I should have. Okay. And I'll just I'll just tell the story, right? I'm yeah. just going to cuz cuz if you were my guest and you didn't tell yeah. me everything, I would yeah, push yeah, you. Yeah. So I'll I'll push myself here. I got the rights to the Mass Singer. Okay. Which was a game show, singing competition game show out of Korea. South Korea. Yeah. Got the rights to it. Developed it, sold it to MTV. Uh, we were going to do a pilot. Then the whole regime change happened at MTV, and it got killed in, in, in the middle of development. So then the rights – I still had the rights for that time, and we left ICM at, at all three and ended up at CAA. And CAA was like, okay, what's on your slate? What do you got? And I was like, I've got this format, Mass Singer. They're like, well, have you pitched it before? I'm like, well, yeah, I did pitch it, but I didn't pitch it like hard. I pitched it a couple places. Like I think I only like – sent a link to Fox. I only, I think I only did one real pitch at um, NBC. I don't even know if I even pitched ABC, um, but I sold it to MTV and I have the rights back now. So I, I want to like package it and take it out again. Mm-hmm. And you know, CA, they were like, you know, you, you've already pitched it. We're not going to, we can't take something to our talent that's already been pitched because what well, we're going to go to whoever, Drake, Ariana Grande, yeah. and be like, here's this format. And then what do we say to them? Like people have already passed on this. So I got their point of view and I just kind of let it go. Cut to a few months later, I find out that Craig Pless has sold it to Fox Ugh. because at that point, Rob Wade was now in at Fox. Rob Wade had not seen it before. Oh. So by the time Craig Pless has got it, took it. And now it's a series order at a, uh, at Fox. And you know, I don't have to tell you like those broadcast, opportunities are few and far between. I know. I know. But so that hurts. 
I, are you a believer in – I feel like there's two sides of this, right? Some people say you pitch out a show, especially when you pitch it properly, right? You package it. You make a good sizzle reel. You pitch it out. No one bites. Hey, time to move on. Put it in your you know graveyard of, of projects. Right. Um, when new executives come in at network, some people are like, go pitch that sucker back out. It's yeah. a new regime. They haven't seen that. They might be a producer. They might be a showrunner that think it's great. Other people are like, eh. Like, it, it, like it, yeah. do you really want to be hawking your old wares, so to speak? Because yeah. I, I don't know. That This one was a format so it was a little bit different but where do you fall on the spectrum uh i would say historically i was always like no once it's dead it's dead Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna do this again it's you know why put myself through this again you know it's like knocking on the door of the girl that dumped you you know it's like why am i gonna do this again but now recently having lived through this now and having now seen a broadcast show possibly slip through my fingers Mm -hmm. um No, you absolutely need to take a shot again if there's a new buyer because so many times in the last two years, I've only had one buyer. Like when I get the yes, I'll pitch it six, seven places and only one of them says yes. Mm -hmm. And that happens more and more Mm -hmm. that like one network just gets really, really excited where every other network's like, nah, I don't get it. So if a new person comes in at a network and they haven't seen it, yeah, why not? So. Previously, I would have been like, no, I'm not going to put myself through that. But now I feel like you have to. You kind of owe it to yourself to make sure the buyers hear it. The bidding wars happen less and less nowadays, right? Because I feel like the network, the networks have taken the last couple of years to really try and define themselves and yeah. be different from the other, right? It used to be a female show and a male show. You would go out and you would get offers on whichever one it was and you would right. fine tune it for whichever network. Now it's, it's, you kind of, yeah, it's not surprising you only get one offer because whatever you're putting together is probably right for it's one so of them. It's so niche. It's yeah. so niche. Like back in the day, like you referenced, like if you had a female skewing doc series, an ensemble doc series, you know, you were at oxygen for some time. Mm-hmm. Like you had four networks yeah. that were like easy to take five possibly. More. That were like, we, yeah, no, dude, let's do the math here. What, what VH1, did you think? VH, we, our biggest competitors, VH1, Lifetime, Lifetime. We, Oxygen. Bravo E. Bravo E. But then you would get these weird fringe ones. You would get like BET would make an offer on something. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. they were kind of – and then right. every now and then you would even get like um, – uh, you think about it at the time, like A&E, TBS, USA. TBS like they for always an would, early time there was – Especially doing, yeah. for these kind of female skewing docu-soaps. Right. Which was now, yeah. not the case. No. Now, because Bravo – and E are partnered. Oxygen is now a crime network, yeah. right? Lifetime is not going to buy those like standard old school reality docu series that they used to, right? Lifetime's opening up a crime night. We TV is 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 in a di- different direction. Um, Own is in a different direction than what it used to be. I mean, you used to literally have eight pitches for like a female ensemble. Um, yeah, now it's it's really really niche. Everyone's carved out a specific lane that they're in, which makes uh, the pitching. Um, a little tougher on us because you have two options, two viable options, whereas you used to have more. Um, next question. Do you have access to your like analytics, your demo? Does Real Screen Magazine call you and say, Jimmy, you are killing it right now in <laughs> the Valley, but your West Hollywood audience is not loving you? Like, I don't know. Like, do, seriously, I, I don't know how the podcast kind of game works. Like, do yeah. you, who, who is your average viewer? Who do you, do you know, like, age do you no. know is it mainly entertainment execs like who's listening oh well i have no doubt it's primarily reality executives okay. like this this was never meant to be a broad reaching sure. show like i i didn't ever think this is for the the joe joe average guy in iowa that happens to watch some shows once in a while like i was not going to reach that this was meant to speak to just guys like guys and girls like me and you who work in the reality business day in and day out they, honestly the same people that go to real scream 
this is meant to be just for the people that go to real screen conferences or know what real screen is, right? Um, so no, I don't have any analytics on like ages. I see countries. I see that we have a little bit of uh, a little bit of an audience in the UK, a little bit of audience in like you know Scandinavian places or Germany where like formats come out of. But primarily, it's like ninety percent in North America and South Korea. Um, a little bit in South Korea. <laughs> they love us in South Korea. But no, I don't have ages or anything like that. It's it's you know it's primarily the real screen audience. We'll come back to the. F- the quick fire questions. Cause I wanted okay. to take that note and tell you why I wanted to do this. Okay. Um, you've interviewed the pioneers of our industry. I think you've come close to Mount Rushmore. I'll talk to you about some of the people. I think that, um, I'm curious if you've gone. Darnell after. keeps ducking me, bro. Really? Darnell keeps ducking me. I've tried, I've emailed him a few times. I've had mutual friends put in a word, uh, to no avail. I I do feel like he's not a big media guy. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like I haven't, I guess I've seen interviews and stuff with him. Yeah. But surprisingly, for his personality, mm-hmm. you would you would think you'd see a lot more of no, him out right. there. Right. And uh, no, he doesn't, actually. I feel one of my favorite parts of your format and your podcast is you always, you know, you kind of start from the very beginning, right? You find out how to make it in Hollywood. Hey, how did you get into this position where you're at? Tell me about your first job. And I feel like all the people that you've interviewed, they are the pioneers, right? So they came from the era of there wasn't always unscripted television, right? They right. came from news. They came from doc filmmaking. They were an actor. They were a host. They came from scripted and kind of, I don't know, right. a lot of them, I feel like they like fell into this industry. And I look at you, Jimmy, and I was like, we come from the generation where we kind of grew up on unscripted a little bit. It came out kind of when we were in high school or college and a little bit of the like you're watching TV before you're a young professional and you're saying, hey, that seems pretty cool. I kind of want to do that. And I do feel like, yes, generations change a little bit, but I've always appreciated how to make it in Hollywood stories. And Mm -hmm. I think that you've dropped hints and bits and pieces on how you kind of did it, but I, I feel like we need like a definitive timeline. So I want to grill you and ask you how you did it. I think that would be a benefit to your viewers. Sure. Uh, and, and, and I think it would be fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start. You want me to start from like the beginning, beginning? You grew up in NorCal? No. See, that's, I grew up in Agora Hills okay. uh, until I was 13. And then I have, a, I have an older brother and an older sister. My brother is a, a successful producer um, uh, who keeps me humble. Uh, because he produces Magnum PI, The Blacklist. Uh, he's producing The Jungle Cruise, the film with The Rock, who you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. So he lives in Encino, which is pretty cool. We live a couple miles from each other now, and we have, uh, we have kids that are like five weeks apart and go to preschool together. So that's pretty cool. But my brother's seven years older than me. Uh, my sister Melissa's five years older than me. Grew up in Agora, and then at 13 years old, we moved up to Nor- NorCal, or when I had my meeting with Aaron Rodgers, uh, he pointed out that it's actually Central California where I'm from because he's Northern California. Chico's Northern California. <laughs> I'm from Santa Cruz or Santa Cruz County specifically, and that's Central California. So moved up there when I was 13, and for like the first time in my life, I was like an only child because my brother and sister were in college. Um, and I was going into junior high, 13 years old, had no friends, didn't know anybody up there, totally did not fit in because I came from my preppy little background down here in the suburbs of L.A. and moved up to Santa Cruz, which is – just forever stuck in the sixties. Um, and it's the VW van capital of the world yeah. and keep Santa Cruz weird. Very hippie. Yeah. The lost um, boys, man. It's lost, lost boys. Mm-hmm. And like, um, one of the Clint Eastwood movies are like the claim to fame. Dirty of, Harry. Got, yeah. got, got shot. Uh, is it dead? Is it no, Deadpool? It's, it's the fifth. It's the fifth one in the, yes. What, what the Deadpool, fifth, right? Dirty, yeah. Deadpool, yeah. Deadpool yeah, yeah. in the dirty Harry uh, series. So those were shot, um, on the boardwalk in Santa Cruz, which is like the one landmark that everybody has. So did not fit in. Toughest year of my life, 13 years old, no friends. 
Uh, my parents end up separating a year into that. Don't have my siblings around. Um, and really just focused on sports and playing sports and made friends eventually through sports. But you have to remember like the type of kid I was. Like I had five passions growing up. The Saturday Night Live universe. Anything connected to Saturday Night Live, meaning all the movies that came out of the people that were on SNL. I watched all the best of SNL tapes mm -hmm. religiously. I used to practice in my bedroom uh, the Chevy Chase fall that would open the show the yep. first season of Saturday Night Live. Yep. Um, the Marx Brothers. Because okay. my, my grandma Carnicelli, uh, rest in peace, would babysit me. And she would just stick me down in front of all these black and white movies she had. And when I discovered – the Marx Brothers, my eyes were open, and it was like collecting comic books because little did I know there was like 12 Marx Brothers movies that I could go try to find because you had to go find them back in the day on VHS. I had to go to the library to have to find Marx Brothers movies. That's how old I am. Uh, Garfield, Weird Al Yankovic was a big, big deal for yep. me. Loved Weird Al. And professional wrestling, Love of course. Yeah. Right? We did not come from a cultured family. We did not go to museums. They did not take me to plays. You know what I mean? Like I didn't read a lot of books. My dad was not like a, a big arts guy. You know what I mean? Like he was like – he loved Rod Stewart and watching the occasional game if it was on and that was it, you know? I grew up in Orange County, and I had never really been to NorCal. And I would always hear, oh, there's, NorCal is like a different state, right? It's it is. Not like Calif it's not like Southern California. It's no. not the, like, relaxed, beach-going lifestyle. I remember hearing, oh, these the, the NorCal guys are hardcore. They listen to different hip-hop than we listen to down here. They say, oh, yeah. they say hella. Like, different yeah. language, uh, different culture. Um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, though, because at 13, I went to a public junior high, and I was – around kids for the first time in my life that came from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial groups. Um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But I always think about how, even though that was the darkest time of my life, that, that year where I watched my parents' marriage dissolve and I didn't have my uh, siblings around me for the first time in my life and I had no friends, if I had not moved to the Santa Cruz, I don't know if it would have led to me having the career here. Because at the age of 16, I looked up in a phone book again how did we get this old? Yeah. But I looked up in a phone book. Did Were there any TV or radio stations where in Santa Cruz? Because I was always in love with entertainment. Mm -hmm. and I didn't really know what role I wanted to play, but I knew I just wanted to be involved somehow in that. So I literally looked up in a phone book. Do we have any radio TV stations? And there was one TV station, but it was in Salinas. It was the NBC affiliate, which was kind of far away from my home at the time. I had just gotten my license. And there was two radio stations. And one was the... UCSC college radio station and they didn't call me back. And then the other was an AM station. That was a 10,000 watt radio station that went all the way up into San Francisco and all the way down to like King city. That's a pretty big section of yeah. central and Northern California to reach. And they would broadcast Rush Limbaugh and Dr. Laura, but they had a morning uh, radio show. That was the local show called good morning Monterey Bay. And uh, I wrote them a letter at 16 years old, and I said, I will do anything you need me to do. I will work for free. I will, I will clean the toilets. I literally wrote that. And I said I was inspired by my heroes, Vin Scully and Chick Hearn, because I really thought at that point I might be a sports reporter. Yeah. Got a job at the radio station. They brought me in. They, they made me the morning intern. Um, and this is the summer before my like junior year in high school. And then I kept doing it, and eventually they put me on the air. Uh, within like months, I was on the air, and I, by the time I graduated from high school, I was the sports and traffic guy 
on that morning show really? and had been for like a couple of years. And they gave me my own show on Saturday nights with another guy I pulled in from high school and it was called the Saturday night extravaganza. And I did that for two years in high school. I wow. was on the radio and it was a great experience because it built my resume. And had I not moved up to Santa Cruz, never would have got that experience, yeah. never would have had that confidence. And also had I not played football in central California, I wouldn't have had the confidence to think I could go play ball in college Right, Because if I had stayed in Southern California, which is a different level of athletics, there's no way I would have even thought about playing ball in, in college. Sure. Right, And then uh, that's what led me to go to Cal Lutheran University in um, college because I wanted to play football. It was Division three, and it was close enough to L.A. for internship opportunities. Yep. And I knew I wanted to work in TV, so that's what led me there in college. You go to college, walk me through, you're about to graduate your senior year, that big, you know, the big game of life is looking you in the eye, Jimmy, what do you want to do with your life? And luckily yeah. you had some internship opportunities. You actually had, had experience. I feel like a lot of college yeah. kids sometimes don't even have that. So they're kind of starting from, from ground zero. What's your first PA gig? What's your first job after you graduate? Okay. The first, I put so much pressure on myself to have a job right after graduation because because at Cal Lutheran, I was like, where'd you go to school again? Loyola Marymount. Loyola Marymount. Same thing. And okay. I was, I was, Cal like, is much smaller than Loyola though, right? Loyola is like 5,000 undergrad. What's okay. Cal? So I guess it's only a little bit less. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you live on campus for four years? No, I lived on campus for two and then off campus for two. Cal is so small. The majority of students stay on campus for four years really? in the dorms. Yeah. Even as a senior? Yeah. Wow. The majority, like that's because that's just how it is. So you were looking for that job, but like the yeah. Monday after you graduated. Oh I, no, I was looking while in, while yeah. while still in the dorm senior year. I was sending out my resume trying to get jobs, and I got a, somehow. I still don't even know how it happened, but I got an interview at the Gersh Agency. They actually responded, and I think it's because I had a lot of internships. I I'd interned at the Best Damn Sports Show. I'd been on the radio. I, I'd interned at my NBC affiliate. I ended up later going to that NBC affiliate one summer in Salinas at KSBW. I got the job at Gersh. I as a in the mailroom as an assistant. It was supposed to be part of that agent trainee program they sell you on, but you're going to start in the mailroom. Yeah. And after one week in the mailroom, they put me up on the talent floor as the talent floater. Okay. And at that time, the talent floater basically meant that I was pulling headshots and reels for everybody in the talent division at the time. And I hated it so much. I quit. It was the first job I ever quit, but I couldn't just quit. I gave two weeks notice after having been there for two weeks. <laughs> you were, it was like a month long. Like I literally, I went to my coordinator who I answered to, who's Chris Fioto, who's, who's now an agent somewhere. I think he's Brie Larson's agent actually. Um, <laughs> And I went to Chris and I said, I can't do this anymore. So I'm putting in my two weeks notice. I had been there literally for two weeks. Like I think anybody else would have just like not showed up one day after two weeks. Because little did I know like you're never going to – you should not be putting this on your resume later. So why not just walk out? When does the stunt work come in? You okay. mentioned this to JD on your last podcast. Yes. I had no idea. This is hilarious All right, to me. So, so I quit Gersh after like a month. But what was interesting about that is I learned enough from that job. I learned what the vernacular was. Like I sent I, – they put me on a guy's desk one day, Brett Norensberg, who's still an agent at Gersh. They put me on his desk. I sent him to the wrong restaurant clear across town, you know, and, and he was like, what is wrong with you? Like I got beat up, man. It was awful. It was awful. The, the assistants were all like doing coke. You know what I mean? Like it was like – I was like, where am I? Like it yeah. was so cliche Hollywood. It was the very – it the was agents were crazy. The entourage generation. It was, It was right? the entourage generation. So, like, there was no family environment there, like, in that department. It was, like, kill or be killed. So I got out. But I learned enough about the vernacular to help me later when applying at, at CAA. 
But I, uh, I got out of Gersh. I got PA jobs um, after having no job for months, eating tuna out of the can in my friend's apartment in Silver Lake. He let me crash on his couch and live with him. I slept on a futon in his living room for months Ugh. until a room finally opened up in his apartment. I was waiting, wow. crashing there. Um, literally, I had no job. I would go to the library in Silver Lake. This is before Silver Lake was nice, by the way, kids. Um, I would go to the library to apply for jobs because his apartment did not have internet. Okay. Um, and finally um, got a PA job working on Who's Your Daddy, uh, which was a reality show that almost got canceled before it ever aired. Um, and that was produced by Halleck and Healy. I had to one day sit at the bottom uh, at a gate uh, because we shot in a gated community. I had to sit at the bottom of this gate all day in my car for a 12 hour shift and just enter the code for crew members. So imagine sitting in your car, Matt, for 12 hours with no phone back in the day, no internet. No, no, no 4G, just, just a newspaper and a book or two maybe and a notepad to write thoughts down on. Like that was – that's what those PA jobs were back yep. in the day, right? So I get PA job. I hop around. I eventually get on Biggest Loser, uh, Beauty and the Geek. And this was just out of necessity. It wasn't yes. a, a grand scheme of, oh, I really want to get into unscripted. This was just, hey, I'm looking for work and what's available, what's out there. At the time, yes. right, tons of unscripted. Allison Kaz was my sister's – childhood best friend from Agora. And Allison Kaz, unbeknownst to me, who I'd known since I was a little kid, had grown up to become the casting director in the reality business. Yeah, she was the casting director for like for Love or Money. Yeah. And she did Biggest Loser and she did Beauty and the Geek. And my sister, I think, said, hey, Jimmy needs a job. And she was like, oh, I can use him as a casting assistant. So she gets me on Biggest Loser. I'm on, it's season two of Biggest Loser. I'm the casting wrangler. I'm watching over the contestants one day. And my phone rings, and it's my dad. And he's like, hey, Jim, uh, I saw an ad in the paper. They have open auditions for stunt football players for a movie with The Rock uh, called Gridiron Gang. And The Rock was like my idol in high school. And, you know, I was like, you know, as a Division Three football player, like I was good for Division Three. Like I set my college record for receptions. You know, I had a catch in every game of, for four years of football. Like I never missed a game. Like, but I'm like, dad, every football player – in LA is going to audition for this thing. Every former UCLA, USC football player is going to audition. Crazy. I'm not doing it. I hang up with them. I walk back in to the room with the biggest loser contestants. And they're like, who was that? I'm like, that was my dad. And they're like, what do he want? I'm like, oh, he wants me to go try out for this movie with the rock to be a stunt football player. And they're like, well, you're going to do it, right? Now, keep in mind, you're looking at me now. I am the shriveled up skinny little dad that you see in front of you. <laughs> at the time, I was about 25 pounds heavier, and I was working out every day religiously. And I was taking a lot of whey protein okay. and a lot of no-explode creatine supplements. <laughs> this is my early mid-20s where I'm still dating. Yep. I'm still trying to like, you know, draw attention yep. and make up for my insecurities yep. Okay, yep. With, with my muscles. Yep. So, um, so the, the contestants in The Biggest Loser House are like, Jimmy, you got to try out for this. We didn't think we were going to get on the show. Aren't you here every day? This is the whole reason we're all here. It's like what JD said on the last episode. This is life-changing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I called in sick to Biggest Loser for a couple of days to Allison, and they had the auditions or the tryouts literally at the Rose Bowl. You show up at the Rose Bowl, and the first thing they have you do is run a 40-yard dash, and then they eliminate half the kids that show up for the, for the tryout. Anyway, I make the stunt squad, an amazing experience. I'm on the stunt squad. I'm, I'm, I'm there on set with my idol, The Rock, watching very early in his movie career. And I'm like on a football team again. And we're like, it's like professional wrestling because they would choreograph what the plays were. 
and you knew when you were going to get hit, but the impact was real. So I was like full on doing like a flip, like getting my legs taken out from under me and doing a, a feet overhead, you know, tumble. Um, and it was a great experience. Got paid well to do it. Did it film in a real prison? No, because it was – no, we did film at the teen youth correction camp. It's a camp really. It's not really a prison. Got it. It was, it was like teenage kids that were like whatever on probation. I don't yeah. know. How to describe yeah. it. I like camp the Camp Kilpatrick mo- I think it might have been called in, in, in real life and it's up in like Agora Hills area actually surprisingly. But anyway, did the movie and then I sold treadmills after that. Because right. I um, right. and the treadmill stop is honestly was a game changer for me because I learned more about sales in that job than anything, dude. I was, you go ahead. Best time of your life you'd never want to do again was it that part? I always no, like no, it was not the best time of my no, life. Oh was no, not. no, it was not the best time of my life. But it was a game changer because of what I learned from a psychology standpoint in, in selling. So gridiron gang wraps. Now I have no job again, and I've got my SAG card because I. You know, because I was a stunt guy. So I have my SAG card. So, like, some of the stunt guys have, like, these, like, commercial agents. So I go out on a few calls, and, like, I'm not booking anything. Like, this is not what I'm meant to do, and I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I applied to be a WWE writer's assistant. Oh, I did, too, actually. I su- did you? I, I did, too, yeah. I submit a writing packet. Yeah, I did the same thing. I yeah. get turned down. They did not Me like too. my writing yeah. samples. Um, they did not like what I was pitching. I'm heartbroken, and I need a job. I'm now living with my older brother in Brentwood at the time. I'm renting a bedroom from him. And I start selling treadmills um, off Pico and Sepulveda, I believe. Uh, And uh, the gig was this guy had a website that was like the number one website that would pop up on Google when you say – when you type treadmill. And my job was to get people to to buy a treadmill sight unseen over the phone when they called me. And there was psychology that I had to – basically, it was like Boiler Room. Mm-hmm. It was like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. He gave us a script to follow. Always be closing. He gave us a script to follow. So you call up. You're like, hey, Jimmy, um, I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at the website, and the 700 RT is what I'm looking at. This is what I'd say. I'd be like, Matt, for, got some good news. I got some bad news. Good news, you've got excellent taste. That's my favorite treadmill we have. So it's our top-selling treadmill, actually. Bad news is I don't know if we have any left in stock. Uh, so here's what I'm going to do, Matt. I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to call my warehouse. Yeah, no, I'm seeing right now online we're sold out of the New York facility. I'm going to call my Dallas warehouse guy. I'm going to see if we have any left, okay? Just hold on for a second. Meanwhile, you're playing solitaire. Meanwhile, I'm, not, I'm yeah. talking about like the Laker game from the <laughs> night before, the guy in the cubicle <laughs> next to me. I go, hey, good news, Matt. We've got two left in Dallas. So um, how are we going to pay for this today? He's like, whoa, whoa, hey, Jimmy, whoa, I got some more questions. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were ready to purchase. What can I, what can I answer? Let me just tell you, Matt, this has whisper quiet technology, patent pending, okay? You can literally be jogging on this treadmill next to your wife while she's still asleep in your bedroom, and she won't wake up. Okay, whisper quiet technology. Okay, I got a special orthopedic belt on this treadmill, three times better for your ligaments than running on sand. Two times better than running on grass. Dude, you still have it. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember all of this vividly. I did this every day, all day. But here was the thing. So this guy, and I'm not going to say his name, but this guy that owned this treadmill company, you'd get to the sale. And someone's spending like $1,500 on these yeah. treadmills, right? And what he would tell us to do is upsell the rush shipping. So the, the gag was, the hustle was, okay, Matt, so we got this ordered. It's going to be out to you in 10 to 12 weeks. You'd be like, wait, Jimmy. I'm excited. I want to start working on my treadmill now. And I'd be like, oh, well, we have a special rush delivery package, and it'll be there in four to six weeks. It's about $75 more. Do you want to do that? Uh, at that point, you're already $1,500 in. Yeah. Okay, $7,500. Yeah, $75. $75. Great. Well, what they didn't know was 
it was going to get to them in four to six weeks anyway. Uh, so I'm the top selling treadmill guy. Really? I have been in the job for three months and the owner calls me into his office one day and he's like, Jimmy, you're killing it in the sales right now, but you have no rush deliveries on any of your sales. He's like, that's like a gimme. And I'm like, well, I know at the end of the day, although we use certain tactics, what they're getting is a real treadmill. They're not really getting rush delivery. I don't feel comfortable charging people for something that's fake. And he basically like yelled at me and, and, and had me you know, run out of his office. And I'm like, okay, I need to get out of here. I get a phone call from the same stunt coordinator from Gridiron Gang. He's like, hey, we're doing Friday Night Lights, the pilot for NBC. Do you want to come live in Austin for awesome. eight weeks? Come do the pilot. So I go do that. I'm like, okay, now I need to get a real gig because I can't keep doing stunts through my 20s. I know I want to be a TV executive one day. So I um, found the Freedman Agency. Did you? Use, how did you get your first assistant job? Did you use a placement agency? No, I didn't. Mine, I got lucky. I was, I was, I was like you. I did internships in college, and I kind of blindly um, applied to William Morris okay. at the time, WMA, and just. I, I wish I had a great, cool story behind it, but I. Uh, they just I, like shocked you, and I did. Uh, one of my internships in college was Billy Crystal. I was his assistant, so that was kind of, I think, a whisper that okay. had happened. He wasn't even rep there at the time, but yeah. So yeah, because how did you end up at CAA? A okay. placement agency? This is great. So there was an agency I found online, or I heard about it through somebody called the Friedman Agency. And it was ran by a woman called named Julie Friedman. Julie Friedman, I think, thought she was a real Hollywood agent. But she was repping young kids trying to get assistant jobs. Yeah. Okay, it's a, it's a market. Okay. But she acted like she was a Hollywood agent. So I, I relied on my resume because I, I couldn't have stunt performer. Because I knew at this point, having been at Gersh for the month I was at Gersh – they wanted desk experience. And I was able to learn at that point that production assistant, life on set does not carry over in the eyes of people in the office, right? It's two different skill sets. So I knew I had to have more assistant work, not production assistant, but assistant work on my resume. So I said I had been at Gersh for like six months rather than one month on my resume. Um, I did put down the production assistant jobs, but then for Friday Night Lights and Gridiron Gang, I said I was the assistant to the second unit director <laughs> rather than a stunt performer because technically I was assisting the second unit director sure. every day by doing stunts. Sure. That's how I negotiated it in my mind. It was Julie Friedman's job to vet my references and vet my resume. But I was such – I knew I would kill the interview. Julie just fell in love with me and she really liked me yeah. for the – three days that I was in her stratosphere. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. responded to me. She got me an interview at CA right away with the HR person there. Okay. Um, I get in there and she's looking at my resume and we make small talk. And at that point I had learned from the Gersh experience, I do not want to be in the talent department. I want to be in the lit department. I want to be where the writers are represented because talent are crazy and the agents that represent talent think they're the talent and they're crazy. But the people that work with writers all day, a little better. So um, I got an interview with Andrew Miller at CA, who at the time was like 28 years old. Okay. He had come over from UTA. He's like a junior agent at this point, you know. I believe. He's a staffing agent. And the interview is five minutes long. And, and he's like, all right, cool. And I go, is that it? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, is there anything else you want to know about me? I'm like, I feel like that was very paint by numbers. And he goes, okay. And he slams the paper, slams my, puts my resume down on the table. And he goes, all right, let me ask you a question. Do you have your shit together? And I'm like, yes, 
Yes, I have my shit together, Andrew. And I told him the line. And this is the line I tell everybody to use when they have a job interview. Every college kid I talk to. This is the line. I'm going to make mistakes in the beginning, but I never make the same mistake twice. And you're not going to need to be hard on me because there's nobody harder on me than myself. And he's like, okay. And then he called me like an hour later. And he's like, Jimmy Fox. I'm like, yes. He's like, and he can, he would never be able to say this now. Uh, but he was like, how would you like to be my bitch for the next year? <laughs> and I was like, I would love to be your bitch, Andrew Miller. Um, can't say that anymore. No, you cannot say that now when you offer someone a job. Um, and was at CA for 10 months, stalked Reveille. New Reveille was the company I eventually wanted to work for. I just learned what shows they did. I already knew they did Biggest Loser because I had PA'd on Biggest Loser. Yep. But they were doing The Office, Ugly Betty, The Tudors. Yep. Uh, I made friends with all the Reveille assistants in my 10 months at CAA. I'm sorry, where was Reveille repped? Reveille was not repped. Oh, they weren't. Ben was never repped. Okay. So I'm like, that's the company I want to work at. Someone had given me advice years earlier, actually. Um, my brother got me a meeting with, with some, some writer, some showrunner at the time. Um, and he asked me, like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to sell ideas, but I'm not a writer, you know, um, and I and I love all kinds of television. I love late night. I love sketch. I love, you know, scripted. He's like, it's, and the guy said to me, seems like you want to be a Ben Silverman. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to be a Ben Silverman. I had no idea who Ben was. I went home and Googled Ben. And I was like, oh, I do want to be a Ben Silverman. Yeah. I want to work across. He's doing Biggest Loser and Date My Mom, but he's also yeah. doing The Tudors. Yeah. Um, so when I got to CAA, I was like, how do I get to Ben Silverman's company? How do I get these Reveille people? Yeah. Well, it turned out that Andrew Miller, my boss, was covering Reveille for all of their writer staffing needs on their shows. So I made friends with the assistants. So when the opening finally came on Ben's desk, I was like one of their calls like, hey, why don't you come in and interview for this? And that's how I got in front of those, those people. And do you feel like I, – I, I, I truly believe there is not a stronger bond out there than when you're an assistant, especially in the agency culture. I was the same thing. I was at WMA. And tell me, is this where you met your now wife? Did yeah. you meet Missy? Dude, agency culture is the best. Like a lot of people coming out of college, kids are snobby and they don't want to like, I don't want to work in an agency. I want to be at a network. I want to work for a writer. Like, no, you got to suck it up, do a year because – and it's honestly – it's the best. It's the best for your social – like your social connections moving forward because it's an extension of college. You're all on the same floor. You're all the same age. You go to all the same parties. There's a party every week. Someone's either getting promoted or, or moving on from the agency or um, has a birthday. Birthdays are like a big thing when you're an assistant. It's like an extension of college, like a dorm room. And I met my wife um, at CAA. She was working for Sean Grumman, who's now um, at WMA. And, um, I, this is how much it was like college. I organized a 30-person assistant trip to Vegas Wow! with my friend Alex Lynn. And <laughs> it was like seven cars packed with assistants, guys and girls. We booked six, seven suites at the Atrium Suites off the Strip in Vegas <laughs> near the Hard Rock, off the Strip in that vicinity. What, night cl- what Vegas nightclub did you guys go to? That is like, that Dude, is like during the era got of – got, I, got I got 30 assistants into um, – uh, whatever body, the, body English. Body English might have been it. it whatever the club was Palm, at the, the Hard Rock. The one at the, yeah, that was Body English. Body English. Body English and um, Ghost and, Bar. No, and then Tau. A oh, Tau. So yeah. Friday night I think was Body English, and I got everybody in the Tau Saturday night. Just saying, we're all from CAA, right? <laughs> but on the course of that car ride to Vegas, Missy um, came by my desk that day, and she's like, "Hey, I'm giving your friends Matt and Alex a ride to Vegas. You can hop in my car if you want. She's going to drive." And I'm like. 
Okay. And I kind of knew Missy a little bit. We had met each other at a couple of the parties, but we never talked. And I thought she was really nice. We get in the car and she's in the front seat driving. I'm in the back seat. Um, I'm in that like diagonal passenger back seat. So I can kind of get a shot, a profile shot of her. And I always tell people the story, um, but I've never said it on this show. It took until about Pasadena where I was like, okay, this is the coolest girl I've ever met. <laughs> and I'm going to get in this front seat by the end of this car ride. And uh, we stopped. In Barstow? We stopped Barstow somewhere. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we made some sort of food run. And I remember getting in that front seat and like feeding her snacks, you know, feeding her her hash browns or whatever we got. And um, by the end of that trip, I think we both kind of mutually knew we had a crush on each other. And like, dude, like I was stealing toilet paper from CAA. Like I was literally yeah. going to the stalls at night, taking the used toilet paper rolls that housekeeping would put on top of the stalls and taking them home with me. And she still fell in love with me somehow. Beautiful. Um, and two kids later, we've got two CA babies. I love it. Yeah. Um, moving on. You've told this story, so we don't need to, you can just, you can kind of breeze through it. You, um, interview with Ben. Yeah. Get the job. Does not look me in the eye the entire interview. Really? No. You, w- would not hire me until I got an offer from Roy Bank at Mark Burnett Productions. <laughs> so he kept me, he kept me in, Ben kept me in limbo for months and I'm checking with the assistant and I'm like, I can't keep waiting. Some, I think CJU, who I met through a friend, yeah. Got me the interview at Burnett to work for Roy Bank. Roy Bank hired me. Roy Bank offered me the job in the room. First meeting. I had to go through three interviews just to get to Bennett Reveille. I sit with Roy Bank. He's like, I'm offering the job right now. I'm like, well, I'm still waiting for an answer from Reveille, and I really do want to work there. Like, I was just honest. Like, how cocky is that, by yeah. the way? He's like, well, look, I'm really close with them at Reveille. I'm going to text him right now. So Roy Bank texts Ben in my interview and says, are you going to hire Jimmy Fox? Because if you don't, I am. And then we keep talking like Philadelphia Eagles football because he's a big Philly guy. Yeah. His phone buzzes 10 seconds later, and Roy looks at me and goes, they're going to offer you the job tomorrow. So what do you want to do? So I walked in with no job offers, and I walked out with two job wow. offers. Um, ended up taking the job at Reveille. Started for Ben on a Monday. He's made chairman of NBC that Friday, and now I'm at NBC. Oh so God. I was not at Reveille for a very long time. But just so people know the Reveille culture, they were there until 10 o'clock every yeah, I've heard. night. I've so heard. that one week I was at Reveille, I was like, what the hell is going on here? This is crazy. The assistants are coming in around 9 and staying till 10 p.m. every night. But now I'm at NBC. Like now I'm at NBC, I, 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 my childhood network, um, you know, The Tonight Show, Saturday Night's Main Event, Saturday Night Live, like The Fresh Prince, Golden Girls, Cheers. I could go on, right? Say by the bell. Is the story true that you call up Ben? This is probably your like second or third day of work because you have no idea where to park. Yeah, and I told he goes, story, yeah. park in the front, bitch. Yeah, that was the line. <laughs> I, I'm, my first time pulling onto the old Burbank lot, I call the office and Ben picked up. But I thought, I thought the assistant I was taking over for, Matt Vasala, was picking up. And he was like, I was like, Ben, where do I park? He's like, park in the front, bitch. We run this place now. <laughs> and I, and I, that's what it was, man. Like the experience at NBC was amazing. Like, the fact that I could just go to New York for the upfronts as an assistant, and now I'm walking around Studio 8H. Yeah, that's a you know dream. what I mean. Like, After what was it? A year and a half before that, Jimmy, you were what in doing in, stunts uh, in Austin, Texas, like getting tackled yeah. multiple times. Yeah, doing stunts, like lying on my resume, and now I'm like working for the chairman of the network. Yeah, you know they like just you know you just fill out doctor soda orders and they just send whatever food you want to the office. I'm writing I'm writing like a golf cart around the NBC Universal lot. I mean, it's incredible. I was in an Entourage episode, Matt. I remember that. I didn't know ben you was were in it, but I remember Ben, ben was. Ben yeah. was in an Entourage episode, and I'm in his Entourage in the episode as his assistant. 
right? Like yeah. it was like a, it was a surreal experience, you know, like interactions with Jeff Zucker. Um, I remember this one, one day Ben had a meeting with Terrence Howard. Um, and the meeting after that, right after that is Don Cheadle. Oh man. Little do I know because it's not public knowledge. Terrence Howard has been recast in the Iron Man by sequel Don by Don Cheadle. Yeah. So I have to run interference oh, and make man. sure that Terrence Howard does not see Don Cheadle as Ben's next meeting that day. So I have to like reschedule the Terrence Howard meet to be at the commissary on the, on the NBC lot. So I can rush Don Cheadle up to the office site unseen. Like those are like the little fires I was putting out every day. I want to go through some shows, right? Yeah. That's a those are, those are some great stories, but you have a quite a track record and I want to tell you a show and I just want you to tell me the top line on interesting story, how it got sold uh, funny tidbit of yeah. how it all came about. Yeah. Uh, the first one, tell me if my timing is off, that I felt like really took off that you were behind was Mob Wives. Yeah. Mob Wives, I remember that vividly. Um, ben Ben had a relationship with Harvey. I don't know why, but they had met when he was, I think, at the Reveille days, yep. trying to get some stuff maybe going in the film world. And Harvey thought Ben was like the, the king of television, right? So when we started Electus, you know, Ben was at NBC for two and a half years. We go to Electus. And Mob Wives was one of the first things that came in. And it was a sizzle tape that Jen Graziano had shot on her own with some friends and then got it to David Glasser at Weinstein because Jen and David had a mutual friend, Marvin Pert. Then, and this is the thing that always amazes me is that somebody like Weinstein, who's winning Oscars yeah. and had done Project Runway at yeah. this point, still felt the need to have a TV partner. Yeah. Like that always, that always blew my mind. Like you are a motion picture, yeah. full-fledged studio. Why they were not producing reality in-house still to this day boggles my mind, right? That it took them so long to realize they should just hire a couple people and run their sure. – anyway. So they send the sizzle to us. And I remember looking at the sizzle and I was like, oh my god, like these characters are incredible. But I, I call Ben. I'm like, Ben, what do you think of this? And he's like, well, what do you think? And I'm like, well, I'm worried about being in business with the mob. But these women are amazing. And he goes, I'm worried about being in business with Harvey. <laughs> he was right. He was totally right. He was right. <laughs> um, and, I, and I knew that thing was going to – so we scheduled, um, we scheduled a, a week of pitches, and I vividly remember um, – Do you show that tape or did you bring all the people in the room? Tape like, and the cast. Okay. We fly all the women out, and I vividly remember the moment I knew it was going to sell. We were at the Roosevelt Hotel for Cameron Caddison's pub crawl birthday party. Okay. And it was like it was like a year where we were all wearing white T-shirts and like writing yep, writing yep, stuff over yep. each other's shirts. Highlighter party. Well, highlighter party. There are four women at the pool at the Roosevelt, and everybody keeps looking over at them, and they're in their bikinis and they're just laying out, and everyone keep, can't take their eyes off them. And I look over there, I'm like, those are my mob wives. I haven't met them yet because they're in Staten Island, and I'm the LA guy, and I'm going to meet them tomorrow in the pitches. But I'm seeing how everyone is responding to them. In real time. And they're not even famous yet. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to sell this show. Because you just knew it. Like in that era of reality, it was like, you know, uh, Long Island Medium. You know, uh, what was the name of the guy that does drive uh, – Guy Fieri. Yeah. They look like cartoon characters. Yeah. Like these, yeah. these people like Billy the Exterminator. Yeah. They look like Halloween yeah. costumes. Yes. And the mob wives look like Halloween costumes, yep. right? So I knew we were going to sell. That's how that sold. And um, Renee Graziano is actually a woman who told me. Uh, how big the carrot had to be for my engagement ring. Um, and I will say, like, as crazy as they were on screen, they were some of the best talent to work with because they had a, an honor and a code 
of that mob life they were brought up in. And they showed up on time. And when they shook your hand and when they committed to doing something, they did it. And they worked their asses off. Um, fashion star. Fashion star. Fashion star was an idea that originated with Jim Deutsch um, uh, and his partner at the time. And then they brought it to Rick Greenback and Craig Armstrong, who we had an overall deal with. It was 5 by 5 was the name of the company at the time. We had an overall deal with them at Electus. And, you know, the idea was – the format shifted, but this was Ben Silverman at Yeah, that's what people told me. This, this, is, this, this, this is what Ben does. He took an idea. He saw the billboard. He saw that this crossed over between branding and entertainment, and it's what Electus was built upon that we were going to connect the advertisers early on in the process. And he went and got El McPherson. So he went and got El McPherson to be the host through Ben Press and Michael McConnell, who were repping her at the time. And when we walked it into the room, it was the format, and it was L attached, ready to do it. And we had an offer from CW and um, NBC, and the CW offered us, I think it was like a pilot in casting, and NBC went straight to series. But I remember even thinking at the time, if we had sold that show to CW it would have probably gone on the air, you know, would have been, had an, yeah. eight year, an eight year run. Um, and then Jessica Simpson, John Varvatos, uh, Nicole Richie, Macy's, Saks Fifth Avenue, H&M all got, all came in later after we sold it. Yeah. Cause I remember hearing, I really enjoyed that show. I remember season two, the ratings dip, but I remember hearing that like there was lines around the block to go buy the clothing at like Macy's. The or clothing like sold, that, right? The and clothing really sold. sold. I, I did feel like that was the best. I say this, it was only two seasons in the US. I think it's yeah. still on internationally. Yeah. But that was one of the best uses of ancillary revenue, I'm sure. Like, you know, more than just a TV show. It's something it was, that you can watch and then go actually purchase. Yeah. Which, it was Project Runway met Meet Shark Tank. Yep. You know, and and it had the the walk, you know, the runway show every day, every episode on stage. Yeah, a little bit of behind the scenes, like the Project Runway esque of like behind the scenes of what went into their designs that that week. But more like the Voice, where everything really took place on the stage, and then you'd have little vignettes, and then you had the moment where H and M Macy's would decide if they were going to make an offer or not, and it was for sale that night on the online stores. You grew up. Watching professional wrestling, I think you've said your favorite wrestler of all time is is Dwayne Johnson, is The Rock. Tell me about as the- a child, it was Hulk Hogan. Okay, yeah, because yeah, yeah, he yeah. wasn't around yet. But but yeah. the Attitude Era was definitely probably yes. what like The Rock, Stone Cold, McFoley in that order. I, no, I was I was never really big in the Stone Cold because him and The Rock fought all the time. Okay, yeah. Uh, not not till later in life did I appreciate the mastery of St- Stone Cold Steve Austin. But yeah, I was I was a diehard Rock guy. And so how do you how does the hero come about? Tell me that. And, and then, and, I mean, I don't know. I didn't even know your brother is now working with him on a feature. So yeah. tell me that. They actually con- worked together a long time ago on Tooth Fairy when my brother was oh, yeah. at 20th. So that's how they actually built their first Got connection. It. The hero came about, again, it was Rick Greenback and Craig Armstrong. They had this big global um, competition show that they put together. Um, and again, it was all Ben calling Brad Slater and pitching him the concept um, uh, for the hero. And I remember Rick Ringback, the first phone call with the rock. I remember we, we did a phone call for, for him to get pitched the idea. And Rick Ringback, who's a great pitcher, did like 10 minutes of this thorough explanation of how the show works and how it's going to take place on like three different continents and like all this, this whole thing. And, uh, I just remember the rock going, like there's silence, right? And we're thinking, is he still listening? Is he still there? And he just goes, that's a badass pitch. And he was in. And we pitched everywhere. So it was the coolest moment for me. Like, yeah. I'm in pitch meetings with the guy yeah. for two days straight. Yeah. And he was so nice and so friendly, remembered every assistant's name. And 
Michael Wright was the only network executive who pitched us on why it should be a TNT show. He started the meeting pitching us wow. before we even pitched it because he knew what The Rock would mean yeah. to TNT reality, yeah. which was still very new. Yeah. Um, unlike, you know, Telegdy was great and wanted the show, but I don't think he could get it past Greenblatt. You know, ABC, CBS, you know, they just treated it like any other meeting. Mm. They, I mean, they love The Rock, yeah. but they just treated it like any other meeting. Yeah. TNT, Michael Wright starts the meeting saying, here's why you should be on TNT. Now tell me what the show is. And that's where we went. Um. Bet on your baby, King of the Nerds. King of the Nerds All is the, the best. I love that show King so of the, much. Three seasons. King of the Nerds was the best, and that, it has a special place in my heart because it's one of those few shows that turns out to be exactly what you conceive in the first 10 minutes of what you conceive. Like, huh. I took a meeting with Curtis Armstrong. I got a call from a friend. He's like, do you want to meet two of the guys from Revenge of the Nerds? I'm like, who? Yeah. Booger and Lewis. Yeah. So Robert Carradine and Curtis Armstrong. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to kill a half hour on a Wednesday. Like, of course I'll take that meeting. And they said, Jimmy, we want to do a show about nerds, but we don't have any ideas. They thought they had an idea to, like, go around the country to colleges and stuff, but it wasn't really an idea. It was very early on. And I said, guys, don't go anywhere else. Give me one week. I'm going to come up with a format, and in one week's time, I will pitch you the format of the show. Because I've always wanted to do nerd-on-nerd warfare. Because I had just seen the movie Role Models. Yeah. And in role models, they have that larping, larping, right? yeah. and they have the nerd on nerd, yeah. you know, hierarchy, right? And Ken Jung being literal king of the nerds. So that that was already in my mind of like how, that nerd on nerd thing was so hilarious to me. So I went downstairs to Rick and Craig at Five by Five, and Todd Mezzaro at the time was there. And I said, "Guys, here's the show. It's called King of the Nerds. We're gonna have two teams living in a house. We'll call it something like Nerdvana." Two teams, they'll go head-to-head in a team competition every week, and then the losing team will send two of their members to a head-to-head nerd off at the end of the episode. Like, that's literally, I walked downstairs and I said, this is what the show's going to be. And then together, we came up with the challenges. And that's exactly what the show ended up being when it got on screen. And that so rarely does that happen. It's great. Yeah. I love it. Tell me this. Yeah, I remember when you interviewed my boss at the time, Jonathan Koch, you talked about the um, tricky transition from unscripted to scripted. I feel like when you were there, yeah. there was a ton of scripted stuff coming out. Killer Women, at Marco Electus. Polo. Yeah, at Electus. Yeah. yeah. How is, tell me how that how that especially for you, I guess, at the time being kind of a burgeoning up and coming executive, probably not a ton of experience in that realm. What was that like? I didn't have experience in any realm. I mean when Ben Ben made me the head of development the second I got off his desk at NBC. So I came off his desk and now I was just the guy that was expected to go pitch shows for Ben and, and, and find ideas or take the ideas Ben brought in and just shepherd them. Right. Um, so scripted, I mean, everything was new, but, but killer women is interesting because all of these things come full circle. You never know what connections are going to come back. Killer women was written by Hannah Shakespeare and I'm now developing a reality show with Hannah Shakespeare that we sold and we're going to go do a pilot because Hannah is a Hollywood writer that in her real life solves murders. Cool. When she's not writing, she's really solving murders. Cool. So it's the real life murder she wrote. Yeah, and we got three offers on it. And now we're going to go do a, a, an arable pilot for somebody. I'm not allowed to announce it. But like Hannah was my writer on Killer Women. And the thing I distinctly remember about that, that was, again, Ben Silverman packaging. Had a format from like Spain, attached Sofia Vergara to produce it with us. And Han and I developed this take of a Texas Ranger, female Texas Ranger that invests um, specific female-oriented crimes. Um, And the thing I love about working in scripted is you just get exposed to other people's process. 
And we get stuck in this reality bubble where we start sounding alike and pitching alike and using the same vernacular. The best answers I've ever heard in a pitch to network questions are said in scripted meetings. Like the, the killer women pitch, although it turned out to be a great pilot and not a great series, but in the pitch, I vividly remember Paul Lee asking Hannah, what's the tone of it? So we've done the pitch. He's like, what's the tone? And Hannah's answer was, the tone is a red silk piece of women's underwear hanging off the barrel of a six-shooter. Oh, man. And Paulie just looked at her and nodded his head and goes, okay, got it. And we sold it in the room. You would not give that answer in the reality world. No. Like a metaphorical tone yeah. response, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had another pitch recently. Um, we have a series going at A&E right now, um, and Anthony Zyker, the creator of CSI, is my partner on it. And we took out this pitch, and normally you get the question, what's the show about? And reality people like us will be like, well, it's about a guy, and you talk plot. You talk format. Yeah. You explain the show in terms of yeah. format. Anthony Zyker's like, you know, it's a good question. And my agent, Joe Cohen at CA, he'll ask me sometimes, Anthony, what's the, but what's the show about? It could be about a Texas Ranger. It could be about forensics, like CSI. But what's the show about? This show that we're pitching today, this show is about closure. And I'm like, yes, yeah. yes, right. Like yeah, 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 yeah. What, you want, you, what you need to talk about more often, we only talk about format points. What we need to talk about more often is like what emotions are you evoking from your audience, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I love working in the scripted world. Not only is the storytelling a bigger scope yeah. and there's no limit to what you can and can't do, but because of the artists you get to work with, just broaden your creative, you know, sensibilities. Yep. And and I now take a lot from that and I use it in my unscripted pitches. Walk me through your transition to objective. Yeah. Um well I, I feel like I'm missing on one guy. I, I gotta tell you one great story yeah. from from yeah. Electus. Yeah, sorry, I know. We have uh, so much to cover. There's I know no. there's so Electus, there's a couple of real stories that stand out. One is like a meeting at the peninsula with Harvey Weinstein. Um but but I, we don't have time for that. And I've told enough Harvey anecdotes throughout the course of this series. Steven Seagal. This is what it's like to work at, at Electus. Okay. Chris Grant comes in as a CEO. And after about two years in or a year and a half in, him and Ben are not getting along. And now it's like I'm working for parents on the brink of divorce, right? And my job was to have the ideas ready to go at a moment's notice for any meeting Ben might have or Chris might have. I had to have ideas ready to go. That's my job as head of development. So Chris arranges to set a meeting with Steven Seagal. And this is post-Lawman? Like he is yes. – the show had already come and gone. This is post-Lawman. Okay. This is like we're already in business with Dog the Bounty Hunter. Okay. And we've sold Dog the Bounty Hunter's new CMT. show to CMT. Yep. So Chris is thinking who else can I go after that's like a commodity that just doesn't have a show right now. So he calls Steven Seagal's agent and we get a meeting with Steven Seagal. But it will not be in LA. We need to fly to his private compound on the Oregon-California border Wow! to see him. So we schedule a day to do this. We fly up to Oregon. Then we have a, like a two-hour drive from like Ashland, Oregon or something, a two-hour drive south to a, this remote middle-of-nowhere compound. Sorry, this is you and Ben or you and Me Chris? and Chris Grant. Okay. Even after we get on the property, the property line, we are driving in our car for 10 minutes on a dirt road to where this giant log cabin is. And we meet Steven Seagal and we sit down with Seagal. And Seagal talk about New Orleans and all of a sudden in the middle of talking about New Orleans, he would like he would like take on a southern accent. <laughs> um, and he has – and I'll never – there was a couple lines that was amazing. He's like, 
yes, um, this is my property. We're talking about the property, how long he's lived there. He's like, yes, we don't get much rain up here, but on one on one occasion, I did make it rain on this property. And I'm like, make it rain like 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 at the club, like no, making a joke like at the club. He like, was in the rainmaker, Jimmy. He he's like the Native Americans taught me a ritual. Um, and, uh, I used that ritual and I did make it rain on this, on this property. Yeah. I'm like, okay. And, and he, t- he had, the, he had this kid walking he had this uh, son and his son was very young, maybe like four years old, five years old. And he looked at his son and he's like, my son is already a great warrior. I already know who he is. And I'm thinking in my, my mind, I got I got to ask him. I can't let that hang there. I go, when you say he's a great warrior and you know who he is. Do you mean you know who he himself is going to become as an adult or you think he's actually a warrior from past generations that is reincarnated? And he goes, the latter. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very Steven Seagal thing. And I go, who is it? Like he just said his son is a reincarnated warrior. So I go, well, who is he? And he goes, you wouldn't know him. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> And then after an hour of sitting with him, Chris Grant goes, so what's your favorite gun? And Steven Seagal goes, well, reaches into his hip. He's been strapped the entire time and the gun is cocked. And I'm like, wait a second. I don't know much about guns, but I've seen enough movies to know what a cocked gun looks like. The thing's been cocked and loaded the entire time we've been sitting with him. Yeah, I wanted to see how your pitch was. So now I've got to pitch him, Matt. So – by the way, we came up there to pitch him ideas. So this guy that we're sitting with, I so Chris is like, all right, all right Jimmy, you're on. Okay, so now it's my time to pitch him a reality show. Yeah. So I uh, I pitch him one, and it's like uh, his version of the Bad News Bears, where it was literally me pitching Steven Seagal, him taking over a dojo <laughs> and coaching young kids. It'd be great. Okay. AMC should have bought that back in their day. Right. Him doing a real dojo and like training kids in the valley, like the real life karate kid, but Steven Seagal. Okay. He didn't like that. Then I pitched him this other thing that I always had in my mind that was a ripoff of um, the Busey show, I'm with Busey. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to do a ripoff of that called Seagal and Me. And I wanted it to be like, you know, just have a nerdy guy, like Robin Big, team him up with Steven Seagal and just send them off on adventures. But I couldn't pitch it to him like that. And I couldn't tell him what I'm with Busey is. So I, I say, Steven, sitting here in front of you, hearing all of the things that you've done throughout your career, the youngest writer, director, actor in the history of Hollywood to sell a script. Um, you know, uh, you do tracking with native Americans. You work with, um, elite special forces, people that train here. You train and, and counsel MMA fighters. You've, there are so many talents of Steven Seagal. You, you're a jazz music or a blues musician. There are so many talents of Steven Seagal that the world doesn't even know about. Imagine if we took an ordinary human being, an ordinary guy who was like a big fan of yours and we just had him mentor under you and just live in your sphere for eight weeks. And every episode, it's something Steven Seagal does that the world doesn't know, but we send this ordinary guy on that journey with you. And he loved it. Yeah. He wanted to do it. Did you pitch it out? No, that's what I pitched. No. Did you guys pitch it out to market? Here's what happens. So we go all the way up there. We miss our flight. We, we, we have to hang out at Steven Seagal's house much longer than we were supposed to because that little airport flight gets canceled. We come back down south. We finally get back to L.A. And it turns out that Barry Diller, who, runs, who owns Electus, does not want to be in the Steven Seagal business. 
And he tells Chris, you're not doing a show with Steven Seagal. Got it. And Chris never even told me that. I had to hear that through, like, Chris's assistant that we're not doing shows with Steven Seagal. So you get asked to go up to Oregon. Yeah. You get asked to come up with ideas. You do the pitching. You fly down. You, you know, you spend the night in San Francisco because you have a delayed flight. And your boss doesn't even tell you. Oh, by the way, all that work you put into that, we're not working with Steven Seagal because Barry killed it. And that is – like that's a great story and that to me that is development, right? Yep. And that's why a lot – I feel like a lot of showrunners, a lot of current execs, a lot of people even that have like grown past development, they don't want to muck around in development because there's crazy meetings like that where you took probably an entire weekend away from your family to right. go to uh, the edge of the earth to go see Steven Seagal on something that never even – Luckily, I didn't have a family at that anyway. point. I think I just had roommates. But, <laughs> but yeah, like you took time out of your day to fly up there, fly back. Back, do all that and then you don't even get the courtesy but that's the joy of this job that is i, I to me yeah. it's all about the experience it's i don't still, like to go on the road a lot though yeah well that's i'm, I'm not to... i'm not a road guy like i never have been i'm not i'm not that guy i feel I like i do it i just don't i don't enjoy it yeah like i think there's a difference between being on the road for like a month right and like like only yeah. focusing on one project versus a weekend or a couple days to knock out a pilot or something right. like that you know yeah. um Tell me about objective. I know elect the stories. I, I feel like we could do an entire episode on just yeah. you and Ben stories. Um, tell me about objective. Well, Chris, Chris and Ben have a split. I'm like, I got to get out of here. Things are ugly. Um, but what was good was it allowed me to cross paths with Corey Henson for a few months as I was going out. She was coming in and Jessica Sebastian. Yeah, um, so I got to build those relationships on my yeah. way out. So I took a lot of meetings and I, I told myself I cannot, I cannot go somewhere that's going to demand I only work um, in one genre. I can't go somewhere that's just going to have me do reality. I can't go somewhere that's just going to make me a scripted guy. So I took some meetings at networks that just wanted me to be a scripted executive, be like a drama executive. I, I took a meeting. I, I met at the Gurneys, interviewed at the Gurneys. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? Steven? Steve? Uh, Scott. Scott. Yeah. Scott. That was not a slight, by the way. I'm just, it's early in the morning here yeah. and I forgot. Yeah. Um, Scott offered me basically offered me the job in the room and I had not met Deirdre yet. So and I think like Brian Spies or APA had set me up on that interview to say, Hey, she really wants to meet you. Were you going to meet with her? I'm like, I don't think it's the right place. I'm like, Jimmy, she really wants to meet you. I go in, I meet her. Eventually I decide the job's not for me at Gurney. She calls me and says, Hey, look, you're making a big mistake. Not taking this job. We're going to give you equity. Like this is a big job. She's basically making me feel like an idiot. Cause I didn't take the Gurney yeah. job. And then in the next breath, she goes, but if you know anybody else that you can refer to us for an interview, please send people our way. So anyway, I took a lot of interviews, met with Eli Holzman, who you're now working for, yeah. and just fell in love with Eli Holzman um, and thought he was the best. And I met Andrew O'Connor, who had founded Objective, which was an all-three-owned production company based in London. And they had not opened up a U.S. office yet. So Andrew O'Connor was this gentleman, like, you know – had his attention the entire time was the exact opposite of the frenetic kind of energy that I had been around with Chris and Ben for years. Andrew was just this older British gentleman who was a producer's producer. And he's like, yeah, we, I would love to have somebody here. He had already sold the company. So he was really just more consulting at the time. And Eli was like, everything you've done between scripted and unscripted objective would be a good fit for you. Let's see if we can open up an objective office. And they kind of just created the role for me. That's great. And objective had done peep show, really great comedies in the UK, like comedy, nerd comedies and a lot of uh, reality shows. And tell me about shades. Okay. So shades starts shades is the first thing I pitch. Really? Yeah. Shades. Well, 
maybe the second thing. I think Hollywood Darlings maybe was the first thing I pitched. But Shades was like, look, I finally, I was away from Ben. It was time for me to evaluate what's important to me. What's Jimmy Fox? Because I've only been associated with Ben Silverman's slate mm-hmm. my whole career. So I thought, I want to do a show about race relations in America, but one that's not heavy-handed. Yeah. And I said, I want to have an African-American comedian host. And this is right before the election, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this wasn't even... We shot the pilot like a month after Ferguson okay. to like kind of like tell you where time yeah. to place. But before that, I mean, this is early on. I took a, I took a lunch with Vinnie Malhotra and Lizzie Kerner. At the time, Lizzie Kerner, now Lizzie Fox. Yeah. And I had developed something for them at Electus. And it wasn't very good, but we enjoyed working together. So I took a lunch with them and I said, here's my idea. I want to have an African-American host, um, comedian. I want him to be a comedian. And I want him to go around the country to explore racial divides in our country. But, you know, it's going to be in the same vein of how you do Morgan Spurlock's show and Lisa Ling and Anthony Bourdain. But this will be kind of where our show lives, to explore subcultures and, you know, white, black tension in our country and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, I wrote up this treatment. And without having the talent on board. Yet. Yeah. Yep. And, and this is why it was pure luck, yep. pure timing. Had I pitched this idea nine months later, it wouldn't have gotten made because at this, at this exact moment, I pitched Vinny and Lizzie, this idea, they were already having conversations with Kamau Bell uh-huh. who had just left his FX show yep. and Kamau wanted to do something with CNN. And I walked in this idea at the time and, uh, Vinny's like, let's put you guys together. So, so they're going to arrange the meeting for us. They first had to figure out, are we making a deal with Kamau? Are we not? They eventually make a deal with Kamau. So they get us on a call together. Five minutes before the phone call, Vinny Malhotra says, by the way, he's totally open to have this conversation with you. But um, that working title you have, he hates your title. Which was United Shades? No. Oh. It was this awful title I had, which is not my best work. Okay. And I'm not going to say what it is because okay. I'm embarrassed to say okay. it. Okay. He's like, he hates the title. Loves the idea. Hates the title. I'm like, okay. Five minutes before this call had come out, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then the title just pops in my head. So I get on the phone and I cut him up before he can say anything. And I was like, come out, look, I'm a big fan of yours. I understand you like the world of my show, but you don't like the title. So how about this? How about United Shades of America? And he goes, oh yeah, I like that. And then we chose what to do for the pilot, which was the Klan episode. Yep. Um, and that was really him. I mean, he really lobbied for it because yep. he knew we had to go big for a yep. pilot. Pilot, you only get one shot. Yep. Um, it was literally like we joke like at the time. I was like, what are the things we're going to send Kamau out to do? Like what are possible episodes? Uh, send him to the rodeo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or the Klan. Yeah. And CNN's <laughs> like, we'll take the Klan. Um, and Kamau's like, no, yeah, that's how we're going to get this thing sold. And um, that show is 99% Kamau Bell. You know what I mean? Like what I had on paper, if you look at it now, is nothing like what United Shades turned into. Because I always say a travel show is 90% the host, 10% where you send them, right? Like Anthony Bourdain, you could do an episode with him following garbage men and Elsa Gundo, yeah. and it would be riveting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And our show is Kamau Bell. I take that as, look, I mean, 
when you're a developer, you like to do things somewhat by the book sometimes, right? You want to make a sizzle reel. You want to package it with talent before you go into the room. You want to make sure you have the best pitch possible. Because, look, nowadays there's so much clutter. The best way for you to get your show through the gauntlet of the network decision-making is just have the best everything in the room, the best tape, the best talent, yes. right? But that is an example, I think, where it's like always kind of be developing because that was just an idea that you had. You didn't even have the talent yet at that point. You had a title no. and an idea, maybe an idea of what the show was, but more of just like an entry point. Good for CNN honestly, for though, seeing through that. That's like, honestly been my best My best um, success has been – having a relationship with somebody at a network, mm-hmm. focusing on only a handful of networks where I have good relationships and sitting down with them and having them tell me what, what's, what works for you, what doesn't, what are areas you want to play in. Mm-hmm. And then I just go idea. I, I, just, I just go generate ideas. That was something I just had on my own. It was something I felt strong about leaving Electus. Like what is the type of thing I believe in right now in this moment? Because the, sh- the Shades thing sparked from me going to a college and playing football with – a bunch of dudes that were not from my racial background and it was the first time in my life where I was befriending people from different backgrounds as me and I realized like the majority of the CNN audience is this upper class white audience that has maybe never had a friend of color in their life. So what if I could come up with a format where my host was essentially the friend of color they've never had and force them to see things from a perspective outside their yeah. own white yeah. You know, bubble. It's a great idea. That was where it it's, came from, and then it turned into something else because Kamal is brilliant. I'm in your office right now because since then you are now running your own shop, Main Event Media. Yeah. I'm jealous. I look around. I see old school video game. There's a Sega Genesis with NBA Jam in it. There's an uh, uh, arcade that has like 900 games on it with a custom Main Event Media decal on yeah. the front. Yeah. Um, Tell me, Main Event Media, where'd the idea come from? I feel like your logo is like kind of inspired by the old school Nintendo yeah. or Sega Genesis. It's yeah. a to- it's, it, you know, the thing is like it's a total uh, – I don't know why I associate with the video game thing so much because I'm not even good at video games. I wasn't good. It's like, fun, I, nostalgic. I, it's nostalgic because I spent a lot of time as a kid playing yeah. original Nintendo, which I have an original Nintendo here too and, and all that. But um, there's something just nostalgic about it. So I blended two of my childhood – safe zones together which was professional wrestling which is the name of the company but our company logo and our animation our actual animation in our credits looks like i told the animators i want to look like if there was an original 8-bit nes game called main event media but it was a professional wrestling video game yeah. and it comes down from the top of the screen and yep. has a one player two player yep. you know not me- licensed by wwf it yeah no. like yeah yeah and um that that's the design so it looks like an 8-bit video game uh, starter screen but main event i had another company name in mind it was vaudeville entertainment okay and i thought it was going to be vaudeville for a really long time if one day i ever got the opportunity um and then it turns out vaudeville was taken by this guy Darren Brown, who's a oh, yeah, the, the, uh, mentalist. mentalist. Yeah, he does like you know, Netflix specials. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Objective was working with him, oddly enough, for many years. And he founded a company called Vaudeville Media because it's like it speaks to variety. Vaudeville stands for variety and a wink to like the past generations because I, I really consider myself a student of pop culture and, and entertainment. But I'm really happy I didn't because I think Main Event is just a much better title, much better company name. Um, you have a lot going on right now. We're doing okay. Just a couple days ago, you had a big premiere. Yeah, on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Inside Jokes. Uh, that was another great example where that did not come from pitching eight places. That came from me wanting to do the hard knocks of stand-up and having always wanted to do that. 
And then I had a relationship with Heather Schuster at Amazon. I had a lunch with her. Same way Shades came about, basically, where I said, I have this idea. What do you think? And I've got this, I got the perfect director for it, this filmmaker, Neil Berkeley, who uh, did the Gilbert Godfrey documentary. He did the Harmontown documentary, has carved a niche for these comedy docs. And I pictured this idea, and it was Heather Schuster who said, well, your idea is great, but have you ever thought about reaching out to the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal? Because then you have like an actual ticking clock and you know a goal for all these comics in mind that they're chasing, and some will get in and some won't. I'm like, that's brilliant. She's, and she had always been fascinated with Montreal. I'm like, and she was a producer because she used to be here at all three. So that's why I knew Heather. We used to share a wall basically. And um, she was, I was like, did you ever reach out to them? And she was like, no. I'm like, well, do you mind if I do? And I called David Gross at CAA, and I was like, hey, can you get me to the Just for Laughs people? And I pitched Bruce Hills, who runs the thing, over the phone. He's like, no one's ever pitched us going behind the scenes of the comedians trying to make it in to the new faces category, which is like the last launching pad for comics. So we made a partnership, and I took it right back to Heather. I'm like, okay, can you give me casting money now? I brought you the festival, and I have the director. And she gave us like a little bit of money to do casting vignettes with comics that were auditioning. And then we got a six-part series, and now it's called Inside Jokes, which is a title I always loved yeah. that I never got to use. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just premiered on Friday. Yeah. I love it. Hopefully, hopefully we'll do a second season. I don't know. Um, I feel like we've hit our, what is it, hour and 11 minute is usually yeah. where you're You know I edit. You know I edit. I know. I'll I probably know. cut out a lot of this. Yeah. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, dude. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Did you have fun? Did I do okay? Did I, did I live up? Oh, I'm sweating. Oh, you did great. Okay. I'm just sweating, though, because I don't know how interesting this actually is to anybody who listens. So. I think it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. I think some of those stories are really good, and I think it's, once again, this is a this is like kind of the um, – a lot of the people that you've interviewed have had different paths to their success, and yeah. you're experiencing yours right now. I think and, I'm the first treadmill salesman in the history of unscripted and unprepared. Yeah, I think you are. I think I've cornered that market. Um, a year from now, we'll do this hopefully <laughs> – You'll have a driver by then. You can actually watch cuts while not swerving in and out of traffic. I need to do better. I need to do better. I need to stop. Thank you, Matt. Later, buddy. Appreciate it.